Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Fading shot. Up. Good for Giannis at the buzzer. Bucks win it. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm your host, Kane Pittman, here on a Tuesday as we continue our week looking back at the 2001 season, uh, a very memorable season for the Milwaukee Bucks. And uh, we do have a special guest with us today, and I am here to uh, reveal that this is the first time we've had a guest uh, live from Finland, Helsinki, Finland, right on, on the podcast. He was uh, a long time. A reporter, columnist for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and he was on the Bucks beat during that 2001 season. Uh, Michael Hunt, this is uh, this is exciting for me. I'm glad to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me on, Kane. I appreciate. It. So I want to start with uh, what about you first of all, because you're, you're living in Finland, and we were talking before we started recording here, and and obviously it's a it's a strange time to be anywhere in the world. But but what took you from Milwaukee to Finland? Well, in kind of a roundabout way, um, I left the paper, I believe, in 2014 uh, when they offered a buyout, and I just thought it was the right time to get out. Took a buyout, went to teach university for a while, um, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life when I grew up, and um, after teaching university, I decided to go to move to New York City. I went to graduate school there. Um, just enjoyed living in New York, enjoyed getting a master's degree, and uh, I met a Finnish woman there at school at Columbia, and we stayed in uh, New York for about a year or so after after we both graduated, and um, her visa expired, and so we moved to Helsinki, and that was about two and a half years ago, so here we are. <laughs> it's incredible. It's a great story. Uh, I, I do want to get onto the Bucks, though. And again, we, we were just briefly chatting before we started recording, but I want to dig a little bit deeper in this. When I think about that uh, 2001 Bucks team, I think there's some great personalities and different different types of guys. I mean, obviously, everyone thinks of Ray Allen first, who was uh, always speaks well, very uh, smart individual, and also a hard worker on the court. And then you had guys like mm-hmm. Glenn Robertson, Sam Cassell. Uh, what 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 are your memories of of dealing with those guys day to day and and that particular roster and the collection of uh, guys that they had that year? It was a remarkable time, uh, especially with those three large personalities that you mentioned, Ray, Sam, and Glenn. It was um, they completely uh, dominated the team in the style of play and their personalities. Just completely different guys. Uh, but what, and in the coach too, George George Carl had an outrageous personality, just uh, bigger than life kind of guy. He was able to spin stories and uh, just uh, he was he was really good at uh, trying to manipulate and manage. And uh, you know, for example, they started off the year three and nine, and this was a team that was supposed to do really well. And uh, after their three and nine start, he was just disgusted. So every day in practice, I was there. I was uh, probably the only reporter there in, in practice at the time in the uh, old cousin center. 
but every day after practice, his motivational technique was to, um, was to rip one of those guys individually. You know, <laughs> I would go up to him and he would just go off. You know, it was his time to rip Sam. It was his time to rip Glenn. It was his time to rip Ray. He would just go off on him. And so, you know, all those guys are kind of waiting under the basket for me. They want to say, you know, what's he said today? So I told them, then they would respond to it. And it always made for great copy. <laughs> but that was George's way of motivating the team. And uh, I, I got to hand it to him. Um, uh, after that three and nine start, they, they took off and they were one of the better teams in the NBA for a long stretch of the season after that. So it was, it was, it was great entertainment, a lot of fun and uh, always high drama. So last week we had uh, Jim Paschke on the podcast and he described mm-hmm. that team as a, a team that was extremely talented, which I think, you know, even now it's very easy to see. You look up and down the roster and you see uh, an ex- extremely good squad, but he said they're also a team that you never knew what you were going to get from them on a, on a game-to-game basis. Is that what you remember with this team? And when specifically, I mean, you already uh, mentioned the slow start, but at what point did you think, okay, this team is legitimately a chance of, of making a pretty big run here? Uh, yeah, Jim is exactly right. Uh, they, they were kind of, uh, you know, they, they were, they were a bit inconsistent, uh, would really surprise you sometimes with the way they play or the way they wouldn't play. I, I think the point that you mentioned when it really kicked in was if you remember George Carl from his days in Seattle and even before that, he was always kind of a lockdown defensive type coach. Um, he stressed defense, and he tried his best to implement that system with this team, and it never worked. It just wouldn't. <laughs> those those three guys would not play defense. They, they, Ray, in particular, you know, just a gifted guy, um, one of the most athletic NBA players I've ever seen. He had the ability to play defense, but he wouldn't. And, and Glenn was a bit clumsy, uh, and, and Sam was just in his own world. But at some point, um, George said, screw it. You know, he just, he, he said, we're just going to try to out, outscore people. And he just let those guys run. And uh, that's what they became. That was their personality. And when you have that kind of um, chemistry or makeup for a team that's just up and down the court, you're going to get wildly disparate results sometimes. But um, more than more than not, it worked. And I think that was the point when he let them play to their personality that they had a chance to do what they did. Let me tell you about my secret weapon for learning new things and getting ahead. There's never been a better time to sit down and read and learn more. And there's an incredible app called Blinkist that will help with just that. Blinkist is really unique. It works on your phone, tablet, and web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways that need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down to just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, to history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers lists as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always want to read but never had time to. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed non-fiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com NBA. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com NBA to start your free seven-day trial. You also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash MBA. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking at some of the, the numbers today and they certainly uh, back up what you're talking about there. They were ranked 18th in the league for defense and they were the second best team offensively. And uh, I think, you know, when you think about those, the, the big three in particular, I mean, three extremely talented guys that could all score in a variety of ways. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what about this group? Uh, as, as individuals together, I mean, did did, did this did this group always uh, find themselves on the on the same page? Did you feel uh, from being in the locker room and around this team all season long that they were a group that that came together well, particularly during this season? We know, obviously, after two thousand and one, uh, things went on on the wayside. Well, they had chemistry for sure, but it really wasn't from the three main players. Um, Glenn and Sam got along, but uh, uh, Ray and Glenn didn't get along at all. You know, I remember at an all-star game once where they were both playing. I was in the same terminal in Washington, D.C. We're coming back from D.C., and we were both in the same waiting area getting on the, the plane to go back to Milwaukee. And Glenn was at all the way at one side, and Ray was all the way at the other side, you know, just in the waiting area. I mean, it was like that all year long. They they weren't all that close, but the, the chemistry came from places that, um, for, from not the stars, you know, George said that many times that, um, you know, you want your best players to be the leaders. And that, that really wasn't the case with this team. The leadership came from kind of role players like, uh, Scotty Williams, like Irvin Johnson, uh, Darvin Ham, just these kind of guys that were role players, but they were the kind of glue. So, uh, it, it's not the way you usually want it with the team, but that's the way they had it, and they were able to make it work that way. So I want to jump forward to the to the playoffs now, and I think uh, while um, people will remember certainly Game Seven against Charlotte, people generally skip to the conference finals. But uh, the thing for me, when going back and, and watching these games and, and reliving this series, that that stands out to me is. Uh, I mean, the Bucks were, in many ways, very lucky to, to get out of that second-round series. Uh, they they yeah. win the first two games, and they go down 2-3 uh, in the series. And they're down 15 points in this game against Charlotte. And there was, there was a really important moment where Sam Cassell, they were down 15, he gets fouled, he picks up a tech foul. And, and I think, you know, in many respects, was lucky not to be thrown out of the game. He ends up <laughs> having 30-plus points and really carrying the team to a game seven, and we know what happened after that. What's your memories of, of that Charlotte series and, and potentially the fact that the Bucs could have been going home? Well, a couple of things. One thing was that Charlotte had they, – they were a big body inside fiscal team, which is what you wanted in the playoffs. You know, the playoffs usually grind down to a half-court game, and it, and it favored Charlotte because I'm thinking back, they had Larry Johnson, Eldon Campbell, these really big guys. Uh, maybe another big body in there. And, and it was a bad matchup for the Bucs. Um, but what really put them over the top was was uh, Scotty Williams and Irvin Johnson, those guys who were, you know, they were, they were at best role NBA players, but they had the series of their life. And they stood up to those big Charlotte bodies, and the Bucs were able – to to play with them on the inside in that game you, you mentioned I'll, I'll never forget in Charlotte it was you're right it was Bucks were down three two they go in that place and the the Hornets at the time they were on the verge of losing the franchise they were talking about moving and the place was packed or twenty four thousand people there signs everywhere save our Hornets and they go up and the place is going nuts and you think okay this series is over but the Bucks came back and they they didn't just come back with with 
with uh, sand kind of leading the charge. They just blew them out in the place. It was like it was deflated. And and then the, the referendum failed on the arena and the team moved to New Orleans. But and then, you know, but after the Bucks came back and won that game, you knew when they came home, they would blow out Charlotte and they did. But again, you know, my biggest take on that whole series was at the time when they really needed to have an inside game. They somehow got it, and to me, that's what won the series. I, I think the other uh, takeaway that that uh, that I remember, or what I what I've sort of learned more and more from from looking into this, uh, was how banged up this Bucks team was. And I, I know um, George Carl was was not a guy that was going to use excuses or talk about this, but um, from being in the locker room, and even after maybe that game six win, and potentially Sam w- was more banged up than anyone with the rib injury that he was carrying, but there was a bunch of guys that were hurt. Uh, what, what do you remember about that? Yeah, there were. You know, one of the things I do remember, it was kind of funny. It was between one of those games, there was a practice down at the Cousins Center, and I think George was complaining about, uh, you know, Sam not uh, showing up for, you know, dressing out for practice one day. And, uh, you know, and then Sam came running out and he was, he, he, it was all in jest. It was funny. You know, he says, well, you know, well, George Carl should put on a uniform if he thinks I should be out there that much, <laughs> you know, and Sam did it for kind of comic relief. And uh, it, it, it kind of worked because by that time, you know, most of the national media was there and, I think it broke some tension, but in all seriousness, yeah, they're, they're, you know, those guys were playing hurt. You know, Sam's a really tough guy. You know, he was the one guy that George always said of all these guys, I think he would make the best coach one day. And I believe if I'm not incorrect, that Sam is still in the league as an assistant somewhere, but you know, for all of his, um, you know, for all of his hijinks and, and everything else that, that Sam, you know, people remember him for, the guy was a really tough competitor and uh, he knew when to turn it on. So, yeah, he did play hurt and that was big. So on to the, to the Philadelphia series. And uh, I, I think in, in Milwaukee, actually, they just had game six on Fox Sports Wisconsin last week. So probably a, a lot of the listeners have, have watched that game just recently but but what's the the biggest takeaways or memories you have from that series against Philadelphia because uh, again uh, I think from the outside there there was um, you know some some uh, conspiracy theories out there that the the officials were out uh, to to get the bucks I, I know that Ray Allen certainly spoke about that uh, during the during the series and and, and afterwards as well uh, what was the sense you were getting from the team was this something that was uh, able to be sensed I guess from being around the group or what was the mindset of this team rolling through that series from from what you can remember well they did use that as sort of a rallying cry I mean I'm not a conspiracy theorist but uh, you know there was a lot of talk in Milwaukee at the time that the last thing the NBA wanted was one of its smallest market representing the league in the finals because the ratings would be horrible you know I I don't know about that I you know it's Again, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but, you know, these guys, they'll use whatever they could to kind of motivate themselves, motivate each other. There was um, some talk about that, but, uh, you know, I'm like everybody else in Milwaukee at the time. You know, I I go back to game five when the series should have been over. Yeah. Uh, That, you know, Philly was uh, a, a much different team. They had Iverson, who was toughest one of the greatest, toughest players I've ever seen. Uh, 
Um, you know, he got kicked in the mouth in that series. He was bloody, came back, he scored 40 points, I believe. But, you know, it's it, uh, my memory is what everybody else remembers about that series. Game five, baseline at Philly. Glenn Robinson has a wide open 14-foot shot. One of the greatest mid-range jump shooters in the history of the NBA. He's wide open. And he misses that shot. And if they go up 3-2, they go home, they blow him out, series is over. That's it. You know, I just remember what George was saying after the game that um, what he regretted was that Glenn was so wide open. He <laughs> he said that uh, Glenn was always better when he had a hand in his face because Glenn used an opponent's hand, kind of like a gun sight, to line up the shot. And he just said he was so wide open. And then um, I think it was, you know, just uh, – Jason Caffey, he tipped the ball in, but it was it was too late. Game was over. And then the series is over. You know, they, they did go back and beat Philly, but in game seven, Scotty Williams is uh, disqualified for the rest of the uh, tournament because uh, he got um, – it, uh, it was a foul situation. He had a rough foul against him, and he was kicked out for game seven. That had nothing to do with it. They were – they were just, uh, you could see their body language. They went back to Philly and they were blown out. It was over. What about after this game? Because I think, you know, for most people, they still looked at this team and they thought, hey, this is this is going to be a group that's going to be able to come back. And, and you know, a lot of the guys are still there. There were some roster changes, but... Did you have that sense that this was going to be it for them? Did you feel like they were going to be able to to, to come and, and have another run the following year? Because uh, it really fell apart quickly. It did. And part of that was even though they had this kind of magic they were able to harness for that one year with those three guys, uh, George was never happy with them, with any of them. He, he always wanted to try to get rid of those guys to break them up because um, that wasn't his style of play. Now, you know, he had to go with it that year. Uh, he had no other choice and, you know, he wrote it out and they were, they were good, but he, he, he really wanted to break that team up and, and they started moving the pieces away. Uh, they, they got rid of Scotty Williams, who was a great glue player. I mean, he was just tremendous in the locker room, kept everybody together when, you know, the, 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 the three stars were going off in a funk and, you know, just weren't good for team chemistry. Scotty Williams could pull them together. Well, they got rid of him. They brought in Anthony Mason, which George had coveted for years. He, he wanted him against everybody's wishes and brought him in. And, you know, in retrospect, I don't want to be too hard on Mason. You know, he did admit to me one time that he did cause a lot of problems, but that just, that just wrecked the chemistry. Scotty's gone. Uh, you, you, you bring in a guy who throw the ball in, it, he, he dribbles out the shot clock, it doesn't come back, and it just destroyed the chemistry. And uh, then Ray's gone, Sam's gone, Glenn's gone. It just it it all it all fell apart really quickly. And uh, you know you could kind of feel that coming after the year because you know that you know that changes were going to come because Carl wasn't satisfied with those guys and he had such power his contract was so large that he could make decisions that overrode the general manager and that just wasn't good for the franchise it wasn't good for the team so down it came very quickly so there was a a number of i guess contracts or or salary cap 
implications that also led with this. And it's interesting. I mean, you go back to the to the before that 2000 season even started. They give the deal uh, to Tim Thomas, six years, 67 million. Uh, right. You know, I mean, he, he was a pretty good player during that 2001 season. He was a guy that, that shot the three well, but he probably never lived up to that contract. It felt, and certainly you read things, and it, and it sort of tells you that the Bucks were sort of hoping that he was going to be that that Glenn Robertson replacement. Is that how how you sort of thought that the Bucks were were hoping that this was going to pan out? Yeah, you know they they way overestimated Tim's talent. He was a good player, but he was a role player. He did some things well. Uh, he was the kind of guy you like because he had some size, he had some length, and he was able to shoot from the outside. He could draw defenses out. But, you know, it's kind of laughable now, six years, $67 million or whatever it was. You know, to today that's that's <laughs> nothing. But then it, it, it seemed like all the money in the world. And uh, they, really, they really hamstrung them, themselves with that contract. It kind of limited his mobility it was in the days where you had to, uh, I think he was up for a matching contract and someone was interested and they, they rushed ahead and locked him up. Um, you know, not his fault. Uh, you know, he was, you know, he, he wasn't a complete player by, by any means. So, uh, it, it did limit their roster flexibility and that was the big damage of that particular contract, but that wasn't the only one. Yeah, so it's kind of the one of the craziest things for me when I think about the Bucks from from not only that 2001 season but right through to to really now. I mean, obviously they have Giannis now, and and the luxury tax is just something that's going to have to happen. But they went into the luxury tax uh, after the 2002 season, where they they're only a 500 team. I mean, probably not uh, something you would normally associate with a team, particularly in Milwaukee, going into luxury tax. But they matched. The contract with Michael Red, I, I think it was four year, mm-hmm. four year, twelve million dollars. Dallas uh, w- already had the the deal on the table. The Bucks matched. They'd already traded Glenn Robinson. Uh, clearly, this was a decision that that they were putting the faith in in Michael Red. But it also felt like this was the beginning of the end for Real. It was, uh, and you know, I think back about uh, Dallas matching the offer you know I, I think back on that and the conspiracy theory at the time and I tend to agree was Don Nelson trying to stick it to his old boss Herb Cole a bit um, you know I don't know how much interest Dallas really had in red but it forced the Bucks hand um, that's another political issue but yeah uh, to your point I do you know that the handwriting was on the wall for Ray and um George just didn't like Ray. He didn't like him as a player. He thought he was too soft. Uh, you know, George, he prefers a certain kind of player, and that certain kind of player was Gary Payton. And um, he played the kind of defense that George loved. He was that kind of uh, in-your-face, tough leader uh, that, that Ray wasn't in the locker room. And um, we see the disaster that that caused, you know, it, the, when when the Bucks traded Ray, uh, they 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 really went downhill, and they didn't recover for a long long time because of that trade. So one of the other things that uh, has come up when I was I was looking back on your work and looking back through this season was the story that you wrote for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. This was on February 19, two thousand and three, mm-hmm. about Ray Allen. 
And uh, it was it was uh, more so an, an opinion piece that you felt that the Bucks were were heading down the path of trading Ray Allen. That maybe right. that was the move that they they needed to make uh, to move forward. Uh, a day later, the trade goes down, and and people will still say, and I'm sure you're you're very aware of this that that you knew the trade was happening, and this was a way of maybe softening the blow of the Bucks trading their franchise player. I mean, what do you remember about that whole scenario? Because even now. When I look back, and as you sort of pointed to, I mean, this was a disastrous trap. It was, you know, and uh, I, I look back on that call. I, you know, I, you're around the team, you hear things, you know, you, you find out things. I didn't have, uh, I, I couldn't, I didn't have nail, nail it down knowledge that he was going to be traded. You know, if, if I had that, I would have recorded it. Yeah. What I had was a sense, a feel, a mood, you know, just talking to everybody that that just seemed the way things were going. And, you know, I, uh, yeah, that, that, that column, I thought at the time that maybe that was the move they had to make. Well, I was, I was wrong. <laughs> you know, I was wrong about that. And I've admitted that, uh, many times over the years, uh, uh, I thought that maybe that was the way they should go, but uh, you know, again, that was the move that began the slide where uh, you know they were an NBA afterthought for for many many years up until the last couple of years. So um, that was the best way I, I, I tried to uh, to summarize the mood of the team yeah. as a columnist going forward. So uh, yeah, that's that was it. So one of the interesting things, though, about this, and we were talking about the job back then, and, and it's funny now, uh, Michael, because people still say now that people covering the team in Milwaukee are very lucky because <laughs> the, you don't have the same amount of reporters that you have, uh, obviously, in other cities and major cities. And, and mm-hmm. you, were, you were sort of saying you were really the only guy, but the job was also different. You, you sort of revealed that, that you actually went to Seattle the, the day after that went down. I did. Um, I, that was... Um a big memory from my career because uh, that morning I got a call and said, you know, get on the first plane to Seattle, get out there, uh, write about Ray, his feelings. And yeah, I remember going in, in the Seattle locker room uh, later that day, maybe it was the next day. I, I can't remember shortly after and Ray was just crushed. I mean, he had his hands in his face. He was almost crying. He was just so torn up about that trade. Uh, he loved it in Milwaukee. He liked the kind of small town atmosphere. You know, he used to live in a duplex with his brothers over there by Ma Fisher's on the east side, you know, <laughs> until, you know, his profile uh, was risen to the point that he kind of had to get out of the neighborhood and he moved out to Mequon. But, you know, he was he was really disturbed by that trade. He, he thought that that would be his, um, his team, his place. And... Uh, it was interesting too, because, uh, a couple of days afterward, I stayed in Seattle because the Atlanta Hawks came through and, and Glenn Robinson was playing for the Hawks. So, uh, I believe that's correct at the time. So yeah, it was just a wealth of information to gather then a uh, completely different time when, um, the paper, newspapers had a lot of money, especially we had a lot of money in Milwaukee and we were able to go out and do those stories. And I was grateful to be able to do that, but just to see Ray and how unhappy he was. And we were talking in the locker room. I said, you know, this is, this is probably going to work out really well for you. You know, it's <laughs> probably going to be the best thing that ever happened to you for your career. And 
as we see, he went on to win to win championship, and um, you know, and now he's a Hall of Fame player. And uh, it did work out for him, but I, I got to say, I had never seen a player that unhappy in a long, long time. Yeah, and uh, I, I would say the fans are, are still in that boat uh, all the way uh, to this point. But before we wrap this up, I just wanted to to ask you, I mean, I know you, you spoke how fond you were of, of that time in your life and being on the beat and, and having the job that you had and the way that the things were back then. I mean, what do you have any one sp- particular feeling or, or memory of, of that stretch of Bucks basketball that sticks with you above anything else? Uh, well, it's everything when you think about what yeah. you've done in a career. It's 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 not the games. It's not um, it's it's not really anything. It's the people, you know. It's and you know when I think about um, my career in Milwaukee, I you know I what I remember is the people, all all the great people that I worked with, and the same with this team. It was it was just the personalities. You know, I had a family at the time, and uh, you know you're what I remember is you spend more time around those basketball players and the front office people and the coaching staff than you do with your own family. Uh, you know, you're on the road for over a hundred nights a year, you know, it's just, um, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a grind and you spend a lot of time with those people and you get to know them, you know, uh, George and Ernie Grunfeld and Senator and all the players, just the big personalities, just, um, you know, the conversations you have with them, uh, just, just, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of living with them, you know, you, you feel like you're embedded with them. So that's what I remember. Uh, the good times, the bad times, um, just, just the, uh, just the, you know, the friendships I made with some of those guys, they, they were, they were just wonderful guys to be around. And, uh, I'm just very appreciative and, and, and grateful because that was one of the highlights of my career that, and I was in the newspaper business almost 40 years. So that was one of the huge highlights and I'm grateful for it. Man, this is, this has been a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate you coming on before I wrap it off. I also do want to give a shout out to uh, a, a guy that a, a lot of listeners will know, Paul Pressey over at Real, Real GM. He's a guy that filled in a lot of the blanks for me. He's got a wealth of bucks knowledge, but Michael for you, uh, I, I really thank you for, for taking the time. It's, it's Monday afternoon where you are. It's Monday evening where I am, and it's Monday morning in Milwaukee, but I'm glad, mm-hmm. we, could, glad we could connect because this, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's good to, good to have that international collect, um, uh, <laughs> connection. So uh, stay well. 